0: In the South, we say, you're doing good this morning. We're glad that you're here. And uh, my name is Pastor Craig, and if I hadn't had the opportunity to meet you, I think I have. Everyone in the room, just want to say what an honor and privilege it is to have you worship with us. And um, I'm really excited about what God would say to us and very expectant about how God would speak, as I am every week. Um, You know, this is an opportunity of a lifetime, really. And so much of our life is given to what takes place just here on Sunday mornings, you know? It really is Given our lives to hearing the preached word of God and allowing God's word to really transform and uh, not just transform but transmit and impart to us life. And uh, I just consider it such a privilege, such an honor to preach and to share. And uh, I've had a, a great couple of days. Uh, I'm a little on fire right now. Um, I was took the few days this week as I got back uh, yesterday afternoon from uh, Appalachia. I was I was in the southeastern Kentucky. And communities that were no more than about 40 or 50 people in the community. Um, of course, many of them, uh, I met one in particular group of people that had never been outside a 20 mile radius of their little home. They'd never seen a mall, they'd never seen an elevator, never seen an escalator, uh, never seen an interstate. And uh, some of the most extreme uh, poverty in America, it really is, in southern Appalachia. And uh, I was there just able to do a benevolence mission trip, and we. Helped build actually at one home. We also gave away a lot of furniture. And uh, you say, Craig, why'd you go? The reason I went is because coming up at the end of September, uh, our our fall break for Paulding County Schools and Cobb County Schools, uh, September 23 through 26, we're going to open up a trip uh, for all of the DP students to do a mission trip. And yeah, that's something to be excited about. I, I want to get our students on the mission field, and so our leaders are going to be a part of that. I'm going to be part of that trip, and so we'll give you more details about that uh, here in the next seven days. And uh, It's just going to be an awesome, awesome opportunity to continue to share the love of Christ. But I want you to to grab your Bible and go with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. As you're turning there, if you didn't receive a message card when you came in, um, you can raise your hand. You can, of course, also find this on YouVersion uh, if you want to open up your Bible app. And uh, you can follow along there as well. We're beginning a brand new series this morning called Too Loved to Be Lost. Would you say that with me? Say, Too Loved to Be Lost. Too Loved to Be Lost. And um, we're gonna look at different stories of grace. We're gonna look at how grace, who is ultimately personified in a man, the God man named Jesus Christ, actually just didn't begin with Jesus, it began even with God at creation. And we're going to look and we're going to believe for, for God not only to, uh, to deepen our understanding for those of us who are already followers of Jesus, of his love, but also for those who may have been resisting his love, to surrender to that love and accept his grace, his offer of mercy, and their lives to be utterly transformed. And so I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5, and uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 1 in just a few moments. And uh, the title of this message today is The Unfolding of the Love of God. Gregory the the Great, he was one of the early church fathers. He had a brother, Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of Nazianzus. These were men that were very influential in the formulation of what we now see as the Bible. What we would say the New Testament canon, the Old Testament canon. He's famously said about Scripture, and a, a quote that you may have heard before if you haven't. He said, Scripture is like a vast ocean that has shallows and it has depths. He said there are times in Scripture where we are like lambs wading, W-A-D, not waiting, wading through the shallows. He said that there are depths of Scripture that elephants can swim. I'm here to tell you the text this morning is a deep text, and i got way too much to tell you, so I'm going to jump straight in. This one, we can swim, and it's more than enough to swallow us whole. It's more than enough to swallow the whole church globally when you just get into these verses. I mean, 11 verses, utterly Utterly transformative and so deep (laughs) that elephant upon elephant upon elephant upon elephant could indeed swim. There's no way to exhaust it all. This has been read, the text I'm about to read, for 2,000 centuries. And we have come nowhere near saying all that can be said about it. I'm certainly not going to do that this morning. Uh, but but, but the aim for this word, and what I believe is God's word for today in the start of this series, is for us to see what it is that God has actually done in saving us. How he has actually done that, and then why it should move us to see the lost become found. Why it should motivate us to obedience. Why it should move us to becoming people who herald the gospel. And I don't mean this irreverent, but... I think sometimes we are conditioned to have what I call an effectual um, kind of emotional response to claims. Like, we hear them growing up in church, like, God has saved us. Or we hear that God is good. Or we hear that grace is amazing. And sometimes we have emotional responses that causes us to bypass the reflection of why that statement really is true. So when we say things like God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, we bypass reflection. We don't take the time to really understand or think about what does it actually mean to say God is good. What does it actually mean to say grace is amazing? And so we find ourselves moved, but not thinking about why it's so moving for why he has done what he has done in our lives. Philip Yancey wrote a book I would highly recommend to you. I read it a few years back called What's So Amazing About Grace. I love him as a theologian. But he wrote this book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And sometimes, I think there are times in our life where we have to stop and we have to ask, what it is that we are actually celebrating? What is it that I'm really, what do, what do I mean when I say God is good? Why is it so overwhelming that God has saved us? What, what, what Paul calls the height, the breadth, the length, and the depth in, of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. So let's go to Romans chapter 5. I want to read from the New Revised Standard Version today, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we are justified, everybody say justified. Notice this: we are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice, quick point here, how many times we get the the, 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 the first person plural pronoun, the we, okay? The us. We are justified by faith. We, that's not you and us individually, but we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? He said we've been justified. Verse 2, through whom we have obtained access to this grace, notice this, in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Our boasting is in hope. It's an expectation of not something that we just somehow obtain, but something we share with God himself. What is that we're sharing? The glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and that character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love to love to be lost. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Notice how we have now referred to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. I'm going to go ahead and give it to you. The love of the Father through Christ has been poured into us by the Holy Spirit. We now have Trinitarian reflection in the first five verses. God's love coming from the Father in the Son or the vehicle called the Jesus Christ has now been given to us or poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Beginning of verse 6, he said, For while we were still weak, notice this, at the right time, everybody say right time, right time Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely anyone will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified, there's that word again, by his blood... Will we be saved? Whoa, did you catch that? We have been justified, that's already now. We will then be saved, that's future, through him from the wrath of God. That's what he says. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Notice death. So much surely, having been reconciled, we will be saved. Justified now, saved, future. We will be saved by his life. Notice this, but more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Would you pray with me? Right now, Father, you have invited us to be here. It's not an accident that any person who's sitting in this room is here. It's by your design. And Lord, we don't invite you, you invited us. And now you desire to speak to us And I pray when you speak today that you would elicit an effect and give power and strength for a proper response out of your people to respond the way you're asking us to respond today. Help our lives be forever transformed in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Now, in order for us to get at what's happening in this text, I think it's so important for us and for you to see the structure of what's taking place. I want to speak to that a minute. This structure in this text Romans five one through eleven we often miss it because of the habits we have for speaking of salvation now if you'll if you'll enter, if you' if you'll stick with me a minute I would like to teach for a minute and then I'll preach. we could call this preaching okay I'm going to treat you a little bit today okay so I want to teach because I'm going to lay a groundwork and then we'll we'll preach all right but this structure of this text we miss we miss it a lot of time and one of the Paul, things that Paul says writing to the church in Rome Romans five he says uh I want you to see this structure, visualizing. This is what we would say is a basic understanding of the gospel and what scripture says that God has done for us. Now, the first thing is that everything that happens, everything, I'm talking about anything that happens in the world and happens within the unfolding of the love of God. So, if you want to imagine the structure as such, you have the love of God, nothing That happens, happens apart from the unfolding of the love of God. I'm talking about from creation to salvation to ultimate consummation to the end of the book of Revelation. There is nothing that comes to pass in this world that is apart from the unfolding of God's very love, His very nature. Okay, Everything that happens, happens with the unfolding love. Nothing that happens from creation to salvation. Nothing that doesn't happen in and through and as the love of God coming to bear on the world. That's the most basic truth of everything. This is why I wanted to preach this message before we get into the rest of the series. It is the foundational truth. God loves, and as you see in your card, his love creates a creation that literally shares in his character, in his very nature. So everything I'm going to say today is about the unfolding of that love to me, to us, to all things. Okay? There's another thing about the Apostle Paul that I think gets overlooked a lot of times. Paul makes a distinction that often gets lost when we talk about the Christian life. He, he makes a distinction between what we'd say is now and then. Now now is what is happening right now. Now refers to the life we live right now, that you live right now. That's short of our death. That's short of the end of all things. And the way this is referred to in theological discussion is called already but not yet. The reason I tell you that is because we just finished that series. The story of the kingdom, already but not yet. The kingdom's here but not in full consummation. And this is the way theologians talk about that. There's now and then there is Then, all right? We already have all things in Christ if we're believers in Christ. We are seated in heavenly places with Christ, and all things are ours, or all things of God are ours in faith. They are in Hope, right? But then, at the end of everything, so there's the now. At the end of everything, at the consummation of all things, he says we have all of those blessings in sight, not in faith anymore. We will no longer have those things in hope. We will no longer have those things in faith. We will have them in front of our faces. We will see them. In reality, not hope. So faith and hope do not endure forever. That's why he said, but the greatest of these is... Love, because at one point faith becomes sight and we no longer need faith. And hope is realized in intimacy between an encounter with God. But love endures forever. Love started this thing and love is eternal. So faith and hope are now, we could say, but love is now and then. So we got faith, we have hope. These things are now. Love is now and love is then. Faith and hope now. Love is now and love is then. Then he makes a distinction which is totally lost by us. He says, and I'm not, I'm not making this up. Look right there in Romans. He says we are justified now and we are saved then. That's what he says. We're justified now. We're saved then. Let me take a minute to talk about this. Our habit of speech, at least I know from my Christian background, is to talk about the beginning of our Christian life as salvation. In other words, we say things like this. I was saved on February 20th, 2002. You go to a youth conference and they say, we had 122 people saved. Okay? You hear someone say, well, we had Easter services and there were 314 people saved. But let me tell you something. I don't want to burst your bubble. The New Testament never speaks of salvation that way. Never. It never, if you're in growth phases, you know where I'm going with this. It never speaks of salvation in that particular way. It always speaks of salvation about something to come, and to come at the end of everything. That's why save, or the word sozo in Greek is present. We have been saved, we are being saved, and one day we will be Saved, okay? It's talking about something that is then. Now we're justified, then we are saved. And if I had the time, I could take you through every book of the New Testament of how the, 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 the Bible speaks of salvation as something in, then, in the future. I'm gonna give you a few examples. I don't have time to give you all of them. Let me give you a few of them, okay? Number one, first example. Think about Matthew. Matthew, where Jesus says in Matthew 24, 13, look what he says. Those that endure to the end will be That's what Jesus said. That's our Lord saying, those who endure. So salvation is something that comes at the end of what? Endurance. I don't get salvation before endurance. Those who endure to the end shall be, that's what he says, something then. Now justified, then saved. Or in this passage we read today, I just read it to you, Romans 5, look what he says. We have been justified by the blood. We shall be saved by his life. Just a few chapters from this. Here's what he said. We have been saved in hope, and hope that is seen is not hope. Paul's church, if our salvation is hoped for, then by definition, it is not a salvation we already have. There's no way. If something's salvation is what we're desiring for, and he said it's our hope, and hope that is seen is no hope at all, just by definition, it's not Something we already have. Which, by the way, can I just say this on a, on a side point right here? Side note. It's why talking about losing your salvation is a bad way to frame the issue. Do I believe people can be born again and people sway from the faith? Absolutely. You're going to have to tra- track with me this entire message, okay? If you just pull out early, you're going to miss the theology altogether, okay? But when we talk about losing our salvation, it's a bad way to frame the issue. It can't be lost because we don't have it yet. Now, I'm not saying we don't have the assurance of salvation. I'll get to that in a minute. But it's something in the future, we are going to be saved. Those who endure to the end shall be saved. I'm still hoping for it. That's what he's saying. I haven't endured to the end. Let me give you another example. Romans 13, 11. You see it on the screen. He says in Romans 13, besides this, you know what time it is, how it's now, the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. What does that mean? How can it be nearer now if we got it back then? <laughs> if we got it then, when we... Confess Jesus, okay? So salvation is something then, okay? How can, how can it be nearer than it was then if my salvation comes when I believed it first? So obviously we see salvation as something ahead of me. Or like 1 Peter 1.4, I'll give you one more. Notice he says, your salvation, this inheritance, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's kept, that's your salvation, in heaven for you. It's there. God has it. And let me tell you something. He won't lose it and it's kept for you until you've endured to the end. Or Hebrews 9.28. Look what he says in Hebrews 9.28. Christ appeared once to bear the sins of many. He will appear a second time. He went back to the Father after dealing with the sins of many, and he sat down. And now he shall appear again at the end of ages, not to deal with sin, but what does he do? But to save, did you hear that? To save those who are eagerly awaiting it. Well, that's odd, Craig, because I thought he was saving me from my sins when I first believed. Well, that's not how Scripture speaks of it. That's not how Scripture speaks of it. Now we are reconciled then we will be saved this is why i told you jesus is not the way to heaven jesus is the way to the father because the gospel is not about a destination it's about a relationship we are justified we are reconciled to the father i'm the way the truth and the life no one gets to heaven except through me no 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 one gets to the father except through me It's about reconciliation. It's about relationship being restored. All right? This is what he says in scripture time and time again. So salvation is coming, but now we are justified. Everybody say justified. Now we are reconciled. Now we are born again, so that what will be true someday, what we are hoping for, we are already sharing in the foretaste of it. Now, We've already had a down payment, so to speak. We don't have the full inheritance yet. We have the first fruits of the harvest, but not the full harvest. And it's so important to remember this, church, because one of the one of the marks of the Christian life, and I put this in your card, one of the marks of the Christian life is I don't yet enjoy everything that God has purposed for me. I don't yet enjoy that. I'm enduring for that end. You know what that means? It, it, it's, it's mine in promise, God's given it to me in promise, it's my inheritance, but I haven't received my inheritance in full, so what do I do? I wait, what do I do? I endure, and if we don't understand that, sometimes the Christian life, there are things that, that makes no sense at all. Like a lot of things get really confusing, if you don't understand this, is why I started this way. Because there are things that God promises to do that we don't experience, right? Am I the only one? Or we experience it in part. Take healing, for example. You ready? He promised to be the healer who heals every single one of our diseases. That's what he said. Every one of our diseases. But if you think that you have all of that now, and no matter what, you're always having it now, then you are, you are in delusion or you become disappointed. And this is what I spend most of counseling with. People are wondering, why in the world am I not experiencing all of that now? Well, think about this just for a minute, okay? There will come a time, there will be something that you will not be saved from. You have to die. And everybody dies because of something. So if the healing was all now, no one would ever die. Your body would continue living. There is something at some point, because of this flesh... That is still unredeemed that one day will receive a resurrected body... There is something somewhere along the line that will ultimately kill you. But that doesn't shake our hope, does it? No, no, no. It doesn't shake our hope. Because even if we receive a healing today, which we believe holistically in the atoning sacrifice and the healing of Jesus Christ. You know what that means? My, my mother got healed instantaneously of, of non-alcoholic cirrhosis of the liver. We've all seen testimonies. Most of us are testimonies of the healing power of God. If somebody right now in this gathering is healed, you know what we will do? We will rejoice because that's a foretaste of what is promised promised. Because someday he is going to heal every single one of our diseases. He is going to do away with every single bit of sin. He is going to do away with every single bit of sickness. He is going to put away every single injustice. It's all done away with. And God chooses to do some of that now and we rejoice and some of that he doesn't and we say what? It's coming. There's coming a day when every wrong will be righted. So that basic structure has to be laid in your life for you to get anywhere else where we're going today. Paul's distinguishing now, then, already, but not yet. Are you with me? So this is about faith and hope. That's what this is. This is about love. It's about love. This is about, we could say it this way, this is about participation. That's how this text uses it. Or what we could say is sharing. Everybody say sharing. That's what he says. Sharing in the glory of God. Now remember, faith and hope are not eternal. They're not. At some point when he appears, we won't be people of faith anymore. We'll be people of sight. Hope will be dissolved altogether because it will be dissolved into an encounter with God. That's the fulfillment of hope. But love does what? It endures. Love is eternal. It's the eternal characteristic. So if we are already now beginning to participate in the love of God that's eternal. All of us in this room are. We don't have it in full yet. It hasn't fully possessed our minds. the, The love of God hasn't fully possessed our lives. But it has begun. So we're justified in faith and hope. But in the end we are saved. When that love, notice this. Here's how we're saved. When that love that is already seeded, S-E-E-D-E-D, seeded in us, it comes full circle into the full blossom and full bloom. And every, catch this, everything that is in God is in me. That's salvation, folks. Salvation is not, I made a decision at one point. You need to understand Paul's understanding here and what he's saying. Salvation is with all that is in God is in thee. Another way he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. When Christ is everything in everything. Woo, don't you look forward to that day. When Christ is Christ in government, Christ is Christ in leaders, Christ is Christ in animals, Christ is Christ in the world, Christ is Christ in the nations, that's salvation. And the King James put it, he, the King James put it this way. He said, uh, he said that this has begun or we're hoping hoping for this, and he says, when God is all in all. That's what we're hoping for that. Look what he says. We're hoping that God may be all in all. That's, that's then. That's something we're looking forward to. Then Paul says this, interestingly. He says, this has come by the death of Christ, justified, and this comes by his life. Notice that. It's right there in your text. Look at the text again. You see verse 10? Look what he says. Right there in verse 10. Here's the key. Notice this. Can you go, go, go to verse 10 of Romans 5? I want you to see how he frames this. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the, through the death. Much surely having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. Notice that. That's how the Apostle Paul puts it. Here's the key. The death he dies, church, he dies alone. Only he can die that death. But he dies it so we can share in that death and we can share in that life. Transformation phase, growth phases. What do you mean? He dies so we can die in him. And in dying in him, we can be raised with his life. And now his life is in us and he is our life. Here is where we get into deep waters because sometimes the way we talk about salvation makes it seem as if God does what God can do and then we do the rest. You, are are you all privy to this or, or part or kind of a product of this? I was a product of this. Like God does all he can do and then we do the rest. In other words, and this by the way is my hard, uh, my hard kind of difficulty with the, 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 the uh, poem called Footprints. You know footprints in the sand? Come on, you know what footprints in the sand is, right? And so look, look at footprints in the sand. And here, here's what footprints in the sand says. And I, I know to mess with footprints in the sand is like knocking over your grandmother's urn, you know. I don't, I don't mean to do that, but, but I mean, this is up in every house. But here's my, here's my beef with the footprints, okay? What the, what the footprint says is there was two sets of footprints in the sand, and now there's just one. God, where were you? And God says, well, that's when I carried you. And folks, that is and does point to something that I don't want to entirely dismiss. But it can also easily mislead us to think that God is only in our lives sometimes. Let me just preach to you a minute. The truth of the matter is there is always only one set of footprints and you never walk by yourself. He's carrying you from the moment you were dead to the moment you will die again. There's always one set of footprints. You're never walking next to him. He's carrying you this whole time. This is the truth of the gospel. It's not as though, and this is what bothers me, as though I go through my life, and then sometimes I need God to really come through. You ever hear people talk like that? Like, I'm just walking along, and now I need God to come. No, no, no. It's all grace. At every moment, at every breath, at every decision, every decision I make, every thought I think, it must come from Him, or else it is not good from me. Are you with me, church? If it's not all grace, then some of it, by definition, has to be death. It has to be death. It's all grace. If he's not carrying me all the time, then I'm estranging myself from him. I'm walking away from him. So his life is meant to become whose life? My life. And what does Paul say? How odd is it, right? Think about how odd this is that Paul says this. He says, he says um, and, and, and we are really good, at least I know I am. I'm really good at talking about living for God. Um, I was at this festival this weekend, this Bluegrass Festival, and every person would get up, Bluegrass Gospel Festival, and they would get up and they would talk about how God wants you to live for him. And they would frame the entire discussion off of you just doing something for God. Okay, we're really good at that. But he says, or what does it mean when he says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who died and gave himself For me. That's what he says in Galatians chapter two, verse 20. For Paul, it's not about living for God. Catch this. It's about God living in you and through you and you living in God. Can I just give you, I don't know how else to say it other than this. and I think I put it in your notes. The Christian life is not a response to what God has done. The Christian life is what God is doing. Because you're not living. Guess who is? God. He's still living. It's not your response to what he's done. It's what He's doing. He's attempting to save a city called Woodstock through his people. He's still doing it. He's still living. And here's where our talks about the initiative of God and our response and obedience to get really confused. And I hope you're with me. We talk about grace like God will save you if you get your act together. I know, I know none of us wanna say that we do that, but we do do that. We talk about grace like God will be gracious to you once he sees that you're serious about being helped. And then we even quote that scripture says God only helps those who help themselves, right? Which, by the way, is not in the Bible, but I don't know how many times I heard that folk theology, right? Like, if you are ready to be saved and serious, then God will save you. In other words, God will be gracious to you once he sees you're serious about being helped. And nobody wants to say that, but we communicate that to people. The Christian life begins with your readiness to grow up and act like an adult. When you're ready to grow up and act like an adult, then you can become a Christian, When you're ready to get your life together, God is here waiting on you. But that's not what Scripture says. While we were yet sinners, we were not ready to grow up. We were not looking for God. I was not looking for God on February 20th, 2002. I got invited by some friends to come into a church. I didn't initiate it. I didn't ask for it. I didn't desire it. I wasn't looking for it. That is not what Scripture says. Me get my act together. I want to grow up. Then God responds. While, man, this is good news, church. While we were yet sinners, when we were incapable of saving ourselves, when we were weak and we were impotent, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what the scripture says. God doesn't come when I invite him, folks. I only know to invite him because he's invited me. I only know to, to respond to him because he's brought me into his presence. It's not first God and then my response. And, and then here's the other way we mistakenly talk about And I want you to follow me. We talk about grace is our obedience and our obedience is our response to grace. So God does something and then he steps back and waits on us to do something. Okay, in the first case, we act like it's a 50-50 relationship. How does that go? It starts with us doing our 50%. God does his 50%. But then here's the second case, and this is the one that's less talked about in the church. The second case is still 50-50. It's we do our 50-50 after God does his 50%. In both cases, we're saving ourselves. (laughs) In both cases, we're in the driver's seat. And scripture makes it clear, we are not saving ourselves, lest we should what? We'll boast in ourselves. This is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. It is the grace of God. Grace is gift. It is never reward, it is never payment for what you've done. None of the graces of God in your life come as a reward for what you've done. You've got to understand that. None of God's grace comes as a reward for how you've lived or how you've lived obedient. It is gift from the start and it's gift all the way down. It's given to you because God is Good and he desires good for you. And the reason we get all in knots and we tie ourselves in knots about this is because we're afraid if we talk about grace too much, people will take advantage of it. So we th- say things like this: right? Uh, you need to balance that grace out with some wrath. You need to balance that grace out with some judgment. And we don't want to be too graceful. Why? Because people will take advantage of it. But that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what grace does to us. You need to understand this. Remember, he dies this death to reconcile us. That's what he does. But when we are reconciled, he pours his life into us and his life is fundamentally against sin. So grace is opposed to sin. It's not take grace, balance it with law. It's the grace of God once you've been reconciled and he pours his life in you is fundamentally against sin. That's why 1 John says you who are born again cannot continue living in sin any longer. Why? Are you able to? Of course you are, but it's fundamentally against who you, the very nature of who you are. It's grace. His life poured into us. Here's what we have to get. The way you talk about grace and the way you talk about obedience is not we obey so God can be gracious. We obey because God is gracious. God's grace takes, let me give it to you this way. God's grace takes the shape of obedience in our lives as we let God be God in us. So our obedience is not really our obedience. Guess whose obedience it is? It's God's grace. It's God's faith. It's God's love being poured out in us. And this is what we've got to understand about the love of God. What it means to be too loved, to be lost. So obedience is not something I'm doing. It's something that God is doing in me. It's not 50% God and then 50% me. It's 100% God and therefore it's 100% me. And this is exactly what Paul says to the Philippians. What did he say? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And the churches I'm used to, again, I don't want to superimpose my experience on you, but the, the church I grew up in, there was a difference between Sunday morning Christianity and Wednesday night Christianity. Let me tell you, on Sunday morning Christianity, it, it was this. Some of you aren't believers out there, and God loves you just like you are, and he wants to pour out his grace upon you, and he wants to accept you just like you are. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with what you can do to earn it. It's all about righteousness by grace through faith. He just wants you to come. Come as you are. But Wednesday night... It was, you better get your life together. You're the strong Christians. You better do something. Some of you are wearing out the mercy of God. He is erasing your name in that Lamb's book of life. He's going to get all the way through the sheet of paper in a minute. You better stop. You're wearing out the... I mean, it was two different gospels. That's how it was in our church. And so it it was all grace on Sunday, but then it was get your act together. That's not what's happening here. Notice this. It's precisely because God is gracious that sin is consumed in our lives. The grace is what overcomes sin. The grace of God. And the only thing that will destroy the sin in my life and the sin in your life is the grace of God coming to bear. The best illustration I can give to you this is the background in our sermon series slide. John chapter 8, the woman caught in the act of adultery. And notice what happens. Jesus, the Bible says in John 8, was sitting at the temple. And he's teaching. He's reclining and teaching. And the Bible says that the Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery. And you need to see this or else... To gain the full impact. Is brought to Jesus and thrown on the floor in front of Jesus. And the Pharisees have stones. And they say to Jesus. Jesus, trying to test him, right? The law of Moses says that this woman should be stoned. And I love Jesus because he doesn't even respond to them. (laughs) He he gets down on the ground. I know we've always heard that he writes in the sand. But he's in the temple. And guess what the temple floor is made of? stones. And he gets down on the stones, and people are like, what's he writing? He stands back up and the Bible says that they all left and dropped their stones and he gets down in the stone and writes again. Now, I could be doing a little conjecture here, but what do you think he's writing? He's looking at the Pharisees and saying, Pharisees, you're coming at me with this Moses stuff. And the Bible says in Exodus 31, how, where were the ten commandments written on? On Stone. How did they come to be written? By the finger of God. Jesus is reaching down to the stone and putting the very finger that wrote the the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 31 on the stone and in that moment they're looking and thinking, oh my, he's saying, you're coming out with me, Moses? I wrote the law. I'm the one who wrote the law. And he gets down on his knees and begins to write. I think he probably wrote them again. He probably wrote out the sins that all the Pharisees had and they leave. And he gets back back down again, and I think, I don't know, I can't prove it, but I think he wrote a new commandment. He, he did number 11, because John 13 says, this new commandment I give to you, love your neighbor as yourself, and the Bible says she looks up at him, and notice this. Notice, he says, daughter, go in faith, and sin no more. Sin no more, and I believe at that moment, she looked at the lawmaker, and she was reconciled. Why? Because she saw with her own eyes the lawmaker's compassion. That's why he said in Galatians, the law is just to serve as a tutor, just a guardian until Jesus appears. And it shows us that we're condemned. And in our condemnation, Jesus, and the one who is able to write the law, is the only one able to actually get us free from our condemnation. And he reaches down and says, You're too love to be lost but catch this think how powerful this is we always treat it like grace was just him saving her from the penalty of the law imposed on her that's how we talk about salvation grace is just getting you forgiven no 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 no. grace was him setting her free from the sin itself did you hear that Setting her free altogether. And when you use the law to try to balance grace, you just kill people in their sins. And she leaves and he says, go and sin no more. Why? Because she's not just set free from the condemnation of law and penalty. She's set free from sin and the adultery itself. Do you see now how obedience is not God 50 and then my 50? It's God 100% and now my obedience is motivated by his love. Motivated by his grace. His grace working in me. She wasn't looking for Jesus that day. Listen church, grace kills the sin and lets the people live. And that's what God does. He's not interested in killing you for your punishment. For your sin, he's interested in killing the sin in you so you can know life and life more abundantly. And the only way, listen, church, you can know the true joy that he has for you is to let his grace destroy the sin in your life. That's the only way you're going to know joy is if you let his grace have its way in your life, and that's the only thing that would stand that destroyed the sin in your life. And this is where it gets really tricky, especially for those who are really good at being Christians. And if God spent the last five years, six years of my life teaching me anything. In my place of service, it was this, to know this. People who are good at being Christian can conquer sins of the body and some sins of the mind. But what they can't conquer is the sin of pride in their ability to conquer sins of the body and some sins of the mind. And only grace can cure you of being proud of being a good person. Let's go back to last week's message. It's what he said. Only grace can cure you of being proud that you're good. It's only grace. And let me tell you something. There is no sin killing in our churches in America like that sin. It's not the world's sin coming in. It's the church's sin of thinking they can, she can still save herself. It's the church's sin of self-righteousness. That's killing us. So, listen, when you look around at our country, and I want to hear, I want you to hear my heart, and you find yourself grieving at the sins, remember the most grievous sin there is is the sin of pride and the sin of pride of being able to live a good life. God hates that more than any other sin. He hates the whole idea that we think that we are good enough, and grace can deliver you from that because, listen to me, when grace is operative in your life, your gratitude at what God is doing uh, is always matched by your desire for God to do it in another person. And you know you have pride. Listen to me, church. You know you have pride when you are grateful for what's good in your life but you don't see it as something that needs to be shared with the other person. Did you see that? Only grace can match God's goodness and intercession at the same time. And if you just are feeling good about your blessings and you don't immediately move over to intercession to be shared with other people, you know you're prideful. Grace. Intercession married. Notice, in grace. You know you have a religious spirit when you need the other person's misery to show up your happiness. I'm serious. And when you look around, pay attention to your own heart. I was so convicted this week. Oh my goodness, I was so convicted. You know how I was convicted? I was walking through my week, and I've done this so many times, and I confess it to you. I've seen the wreck of other people's lives, and then I heard myself saying, I heard myself, well, I thank God that's not me. That is ungodly. That is ugly, because that is me. That is my brother. That is my sister. So I'm prideful. That goodness has not translated to intercession yet. <laughs> it's not translated to compassion in full yet which is what God wants to do with God's grace in us. He wants us to move it because that is my brother, that is my sister, and anytime I rejoice in the way things are going in my life and that doesn't immediately move into intercession for everyone else, then I'm not yet like Christ. I'm not yet like Christ. And the grace of God is the only thing that can teach you gratitude and intercession at the same time, gratitude and compassion to the full level, and he wants to give that to us. And so so we are moving along here from the death of Jesus Christ, to share in his glory. And these are the last words I give you. Notice this, this is, this is grace that we experience and this over here then is the glory that he wants us to share in. It's all grace, folks. My wife, anything in my life is all grace. Folks, even my obedience is as much grace as God's call to obedience. But it's all moving towards what? Glory. Come on, say glory. A share in his, a share in his. But it's not based on my response to God, but in God's action on my behalf. We sang this, this song this morning, which is, by the way, I asked Rachel on the team to sing it. It's the second song we sang. Did you realize it? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. What does that mean? The book of Hebrews takes up a story. I'm getting close to finishing. A story of Abraham. And God shows up to Abraham. And he tells him, you're going to have a son even though you're old. Even though you're old. And the Bible says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now we pause right there and we don't see what the whole rest of the story is. That's verse 6. Do you know what verse 7 through 11 talks about? God, after he tells Abraham, you're righteous, he then looks back at God and says, how can I know that this will really happen? And God loves that kind of question. Did you know that faith is not unquestioning? Faith is asking the right questions. God loves right questions. Faith is not this, oh, I trust you. Here's what God loves. God, I trust you. Now, you better tell somebody how in the world this old man is gonna get this old woman pregnant. That's what he says. And God says, oh, here's how I know. Here's how I'll show you. And God literally puts a deep sleep on Abraham. I'm going to a wedding right after our second gathering today. This is where the wedding came from, by the way. He says, bring me a a a heifer, a goat. He he cuts them. This is an interesting passage. He cuts them in half. He puts half the animals here, half the animals there. Then he puts Abraham asleep, which is why the bride's family goes on one side and the groom on the other side. Then God begins to walk through the middle while he's asleep. Interesting. This is why the bride meets Abraham. Her husband in the meeting place, the holy place. That's why she's got a white dress, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is why the proclamation of marriage, Mr. and Mrs., is because God changed the name of Abraham, Abram to Abraham. It's all right there, Christian weddings. But notice, he does this covenant where he walks through the middle of these two halves. And when he does, he wakes up and says, This is how you know Abraham. And Abraham didn't do nothing. (laughs) He slept. He slept the whole covenant. And God made him sleep. No 50-50 there. No 75-25 there. He's dead asleep the whole time and Hebrews picks up on this passage and says this is how you know that God will keep his promises how do we know God keeps his promises he says because God swears only by himself because let me tell you God alone can make unconditional promises hear me hear me well if God's sal- saving me or salvation was dependent upon my response if he had to make a covenant just with me the covenant would always be weak on one side because I can be faithless I can be stubborn I can be rebellious so what God says is this I got to make a covenant with you Craig that doesn't depend on you so I'm gonna become you and in becoming you I'm gonna make a covenant with myself what happened in Jerusalem that day 2,000 years ago it's God in that moment literally making a covenant with God himself so that our salvation does not rest on my belief not in my obedience but in his belief his obedience his grace and how do I know I can trust it because I have an anchor that holds within the veil if the anchor was held to me I I would not be able to trust it. But the anchor's not on me. It's behind the veil where Jesus sits. That's how I know God can keep his promises. His very promise is rooted in his character, in the very nature of God, and not my obedience. How do I know my salvation's trustworthy? That's the question people ask. Because it don't depend on you. It's what God has done in Jesus. Now don't hear me. Don't mishear me. This does not mean, some of y'all are thinking, oh, he's going to dismiss. He's not going talk about sin. Nope, I am right now. This does not mean that God is not taking sin seriously. This does not mean that God will brush aside all the sin and all the wrong that's in you. It's precisely because salvation is rooted in God's own life. We know that he will not stop being God until he has healed us of all of our diseases. Until he has righted every wrong in our life until he has gotten rid of every bit of darkness and driven it out with his light, until he has brought life out of all death. He is committed to our health. He is committed to our joy. He is committed to our peace. He is committed to our life. And that's why he's opposed to sin, folks. And the way to get sin out of our life is not to try to balance God's grace with the law. It's to let the grace of God have its full sway in your life, to let the grace of God and the word of God run swiftly through your whole life. Let's let it do all it wants to do. And folks, on the other side of that is that you get to share in his glory. You get to share in the very glory of God and you become holy as he is holy. You become everything that he is. That is what he is committed to in your life and in my life. And if we don't talk about sin in this way, folks, we sometimes communicate to people that God isn't quite sure if he rejoices more in damning people or saving them. And this is, this is, a, this is a new it's a, a reoccurring fad, but it's a major theological fad right now. Like, does God rejoice more in damning people or saving them? Well, think about the way we do evangelism. We talk about evangelism being motivated by wanting to save people from the judgment that's coming. It's not how we should think about evangelism. Evangelism is not saving people from the judgment of God. Evangelism is saving people by the judgment of God, saving them from themselves, saving them from the real enemy, saving them from the sin and the destruction in their life, saving them in the only way they can be saved, which is to be brought to the God who created them, who purposes life for them and loves them. Folks, think about this. God doesn't love us because Jesus died. Jesus died because God loves us. He motivated, he loves us, he wants us. And getting that wrong ruins your doctrine of God. If you think God is always mad and Jesus is the big brother to step in the way of the alcoholic father who beats the young kid, you've got a wrong view of God. It's because God the Father loves us that Jesus dies on the cross. It's not saving us from the judgment that comes. It's saving us by the judgment of God. He purposes the best for you when you evangelize. He wants more for you. He's committed to your hope. He's committed to your joy. He's committed to your peace. He's committed to your life. Notice, they must see that God has that for them or we're not doing evangelism. And if they're smart enough to realize, have you ever thought about this? If they're smart enough to realize what we're really saying, why would they want to convert to a God that doesn't have their end in mind? But he does have their end in mind. And scripture says at the right time, everybody say right time. He wants to die at the right time that makes it very clear this is not about your turning to me. And he will say in Romans 10, 20, I wanna read it for you real quick, look what he says. Romans chapter 10, verse 20. He says, this this Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. Wow. I have been found by those who did not seek me. You know, one of the things that he has to save us from is the desire to save ourselves. He has to save us from the belief that I can obey enough, believe enough to earn this. He must show me that I'm not that kind of creature, that I'm to depend on God every moment, on every point, on what he's doing for me. We are moving towards glory, sharing in his glory. God isn't just taking us to heaven. Did you know that this whole Christian life is not about us living and dying and living on a cloud and wearing a robe and playing a harp? I don't even like robes and I don't like harps. That's a bad heaven for me. You know what he where really He promised to share in the very life of God. Romans 8, 17, look what he says. And if children, then heirs, we're heirs of God. No, yet we're joint heirs with Christ. You know what it means to be a joint heir? Everything that is his is yours. Because what God the Father gives to the Son and the Spirit, he means nothing less than that for you and your neighbor and your enemy and the stranger. He means nothing less than everything that God has for the Son to give to you. You say, Craig, where does that show up in Scripture? All over, but the, my favorite one is this. We just finished the book of Revelation. There's three images of the throne in Revelation. You ready? The first image John gets is God he sees on the throne and the lamb next to it. The second image, he sees the lamb on the throne. You know what he sees the third image? He sees the lamb opening up the throne for us to set on the throne with him. Did you see the progression? It's God, everything that is the Father's is in the Son's because he sits on it with, and everything that's in the Son is whose? It's ours. We are sharing in the very life of God. It's participation. It's sharing. It's not heaven. That's a whole lot better than heaven. I'd whole much rather have the life of God than a mansion over the hill somewhere or talk about some gold streets. I'm talking about sharing in God's life. Ruling and reigning on the very throne of God for all of eternity. He promises us that. Well, that's a whole lot better in heaven. A whole lot better than a mansion and golden streets. One who sits on the throne. One who sits on the throne. We boast in that hope, he says, sharing in the glory of God What's coming for everyone is not just not going to hell. It's not just going to heaven. It's a share in God's only life and living in this creative reality that he has made known to us. Life more abundantly. To sing, Rachel, like we've never sung. To enjoy one another like we've never enjoyed one another. To eat and drink like we've never eaten and drink drunk. He's coming to renew all things, a new heaven and a new earth. He said, behold, all things passed away and all things become new. And in Revelation 21, he says, all things have become new. He says, look, the tabernacle of God is tabernacling among his people. That's better than heaven, folks. A share in everything that God is, and we can boast even when we are suffering. Why? Because even when we're suffering, we know it's temporary. The gospel gives suffering bearability. It gives it purpose. And best of all, it gives it an expiration date. Suffering is going to end. Do you understand that? It's temporary that's why he said the suffering now is not compared to be the glory that will be revealed to us. Why is the suffering not, wor- or not worth the glory that will be revealed? Because it's in suffering that God makes us like his son Jesus. It's in suffering that he forms us. Suffering for Paul encompassed all of life. It wasn't like you suffer in life. For Paul, anytime he uses the word suffer, that is life. All that life is, is suffering for Paul. But he says there's coming a time when the suffering ends. Why? And there, this glory is not worth being compared. Why? Because Because your suffering is not good in itself. We don't romanticize suffering. No, no, no. But we serve a God who can make good out of whatever you're suffering. What the enemy intended for evil, God purpose for good. And the way he makes your suffering good is he makes you like his son. That's why he said in 1 John 4 17, as he is so are we in this world. Meaning whatever we suffer, whatever difficulty God can use that suffering creatively to make us look like Jesus. So that what comes out of the suffering is a sign that even suffering can be defeated by the love of God. Listen to me church, what happens when faithful people suffer is that suffering itself is changed. It's not that we're just changed. God causes us to change suffering itself. We transfigure the suffering itself into the beauty of what God can do. Into the beauty of how God can take broken lives and suffering and use it for his good. And God, he said, is at work in all things and nothing can happen to you that God can't creatively turn to your transformation and the transformation of your neighbor, your family, and he does that by making you like Christ. Your character like Christ through suffering. He says suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character to produces hope that doesn't disappoint and that love is already in you. He says we have peace with God. I'm finished, seriously. We suggest to people that God is angry and he's waiting to get what he wants before he accepts us. Like Jesus, I said this a few months ago, is the merciful side of God and the Father is like the judgment side of God. Jesus is the older brother who gets between us and the angry alcoholic dad. We, don't, we suggest that. We don't say it, but we suggest it. The scripture says God so loved the world he gave his son. It says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We didn't need to get God calmed down so he can accept us. We need to get ourselves calmed down so we can see the way God's embracing us. That's what he's saying. And the reason we have peace with God is because not God's at odds with us, it's because we are at odds with him. This is why sin is so destructive and deceptive. Listen to me, church. It convinces us that we Know something about God that's not true. And I'll end with this. Sin convinces you that God's angry. Sin convinces you that God wants to destroy you and judge you. Sin convinces you God's against you. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, who hid? Who hid? Did God? We always talk about God's hiding from our sin. No, 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 no. He keeps walking through the garden like a normal old day. Why? Why? God doesn't hide. He doesn't withdraw from them. They hide because sin causes you to pull away from God, not God pull away from you. Sin causes you to hide. Sin causes you to pull away. But when you do pull away, you know what he does? He comes and finds you. When you pull away, he comes and he finds you. This is the relentless love of God. Listen to me. Not all roads lead to God, but God can find you no matter what road you're traveling. And if you're a testimony to that, can somebody say amen? No matter what road you're on, God can find you. And and he will not let you go. And this is what brings us to the wrath of God. Listen to me, church, the wrath of God is not like the love of God. You know why? Because the Bible says God is what? Nowhere in the Bible to say God is wrath. Nowhere. The love of God is God's true one being. We can say God is love. Wrath is not an eternal characteristic of God. There's always Love. And I put in your card there, wrath is the shape that love has to take when we keep hiding from the only God that can save us. Even his wrath is motivated by his love. Love must take the form of wrath when you keep hiding, when you keep running. Because, yeah, you can resist it. But make no mistake about it, God will be wrathful. He will but not because he's tired of you or sick of you or he, he stops loving you. Precisely because he will never grow tired of you and he's never sickened by you and his relentless love will find you. Wrath is just the furthest reach of love of God that will never let you go. My kids right now are manifesting their sin nature a lot. Marley gets up in the middle of the night now and does what she wants to do, walks. The other day Knox went outside and It's not like the days I used to live. I go down and play with the kids on the street, but we don't let our kids do that. Not at this age. And my son keeps doing it, and I discipline him. And I won't tell you all the forms that that discipline takes, but I keep disciplining him over and over and over. He's had an attitude this week. When I was gone, my wife called me multiple times. I had to deal with his attitude. It was a bad, bad week of attitude, and we keep disciplining him. But we don't discipline him because we're sickened by him. God is not repelled by our sins because God can't stomach our sin. He's repelled by our sin because He hates sin. Because He knows what sin does to us. Do you understand that? He knows what sin does to you. Sin will destroy you. It robs you of joy. It robs you of peace. It steals, kills, and destroys you. And God just wants you to have life. That's why His grace is out to destroy the sin in your life. He knows. He's against sin because He's for you. He's not against sin because He hates you. And the wrath of God is not something that eventually happens because you won't accept the love of God. No, the love of God will never stop being towards you. And maybe you'll resist it eternally. But but I want to tell you, maybe I will refuse the love of God. But there will never be a time when God is done with me. The scripture says His calling is without repentance. And though we're faithless, He remains faithful. His love is unfathomable. He cannot deny His himself because he made a covenant with himself and he cannot deny it so I can resist it I can resist it forever but he will never turn from me and if you're not sure if you don't know of your belovedness here in this room today hear me God is not frightened by your sin no matter what sin in your life he's not scared of your sin he is devoted to you in ways that you can't imagine all you got to do is just open up your life there's nothing to fear from this God he wants the best for you and if you're in this room and you are intimate with the Lord hear me this is your takeaway. He means so much more for your life than you can ever imagine. Let His grace have full sway in your life. And boast in the hope He has for you. Because we not only have the peace with God. We have the peace of God. And God wants to transform everything in your life where His peace becomes my peace. His joy is my joy. His love is my love. His will is my will. God says you're righteous. And the same God who says, let there be light, says over you today, let there be goodness. Let there be joy. Let there be love. And listen to me, church. When God says something, he's not lying. Justification is not a lie. I hear this teach taught a lot. Like he just says you're righteous, but you're really full of evil things. No. Oh! The very fact he said it makes it. The very word that said, let there be light, says, let there be goodness. And there's goodness in you. Let there be love. And love comes in you. Let there be peace and peace. Let there be joy and joy. And God will not stop calling forth in your life until He has called forth in your life everything that's in the Son. Nothing less than that that God, Paul says we are boasting in. And He is wanting us to rejoice in the very character of God. And when you leave here today and you go to the coffee shop and I go to the wedding and you go to the restaurant or you go eat somewhere, listen to me. And when you see people, dear God, listen to me. You see people whose lives are shattered and are broken by sin. I want you to see people on whom God is smiling and I want you to know the secret that they don't know about their life. That there is a God before they even knew to call on Him. He is calling on them. And if they don't know His name, He knows their name. And if they think one way about their future, my God, He thinks another way about their future. And every broken life you see today, tomorrow, and the rest of your life, I want what springs up inside of you. is the confidence of knowing that what God is doing in them is greater than what you could ever imagine and what they could ever imagine. And you cannot imagine how radically delighted God is in the shattered lives at the coffee house he is so radically delighted in the lives that are so far from him the addicts, why? because he wants to do more than they can ever perceive or imagine they are too loved to be lost they are too loved to be lost his grace, his mercy, his love is who he is man what would happen if this church got a hold of this imagine what would happen in this community grace is better i don't care what sin's done to you god is better god who is in you is greater than he that in the world. God is better. God is better. Grace is better. Grace is superior. There's nothing to fear. He means only good for you, church. I want you to stand on your feet if you know that God means nothing but good for you. If He only has purpose in life for you. If He's committed to your joy and your peace. Can you lift up your hands? And let's just open up our mouths and declare His goodness right now. Hallelujah. Again,